Just a wonderful blessing you all are. Thank you very much for that song, and Daniel, for singing that. And Matt Papa, I don't know if you know Matt Papa, who wrote that song, neat guy, goes to the seminary up the road. Today we're starting a series on marriage. I, my name is Mark Lederbach. I'm one of the elders here at North Wake. I have the privilege to kick us off in our series. Our discussion today is a marriage like Christ's, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 28 through 32. To get us started, though, I thought I might uh, get you to think through a little bit of what's happening in our culture around us. I think it's always wise for us, in order to address a topic like this, to get a sense of where our culture is. So let me introduce you to uh, what you may or may not realize is a, a cultural harbinger. This is the Righteous Brothers. This is the album cover for a, a album that made a massive difference in our culture, although probably it looks too goofy to do so. The song that this is uh, on the top there, you see, is that you've lost that loving feeling. In 1964, that song was released, and in 1965, it became a, a, a bestseller not only in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom. And then it later had an en- enjoyed resurgence through the movie Top Gun. If any of you saw that movie, uh, see the days of big hair and Tom Cruise, um, the music in, uh, company that kind of rates a lot of these different songs that come out, this, it's called Broadcast Music and Company, or BMI. Sometimes you might see those three letters on the end of songs or on the back of an album. This, they rated this song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, as the, the number one song aired on either radio or television in the previous century. This song was played more frequently than anything, any other tune over the, uh, the previous century from the, up to the 1900s. And I think, in many ways, it captures a lot of the spirit of the age of American understandings of how you evaluate a relationship. Let me share with you some of the deep and rich words that come along with this song. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, you've lost that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone. 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 Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Sorry, can't help it. I always wanted to be on the praise team, and that's why I'm not. <laughs> you know, the Righteous Brothers uh, sang about this uh, really, in many ways, shallow evaluation tool of, of, of how to think through the staying power of a relationship. But, you know, they're not the only ones. They're actually just one in a long line. Let me, let me be a little bit more... Uh, up to date for you, if you will, think through this person, Taylor Swift, and this album that she put out called Fearless. One of the songs in that album is called Hey Stephen. And it's interesting to see how, just like the Righteous Brothers, Taylor, I'm not picking on Taylor Swift in particular, she's just one of a long lineage of people who have this understanding that feelings really are the barometer of a relationship. Let me share you some of the words from the song Hey Stephen. It says this I can't help if you look like an angel. Can't help if I want to kiss you in the rain, so come feel this magic I've been feeling since I met you. Can't help it if there's no one else. Mm, Can't help myself. Can't help myself. Can't help myself. Now think about what this, you know, uh, Taylor Swift has become a, a cultural icon right now, particularly for teenage girls. Think about what message that's teaching our teenage girls about the nature of relationships. She recently put out this album called Speak Now, 
And in this album, she has a song called Sparks Fly. And if you go to her webpage, you can actually find that when she writes a song, she'll put the lyrics on her webpage, but she'll also give a little story on how the song was created. And here's what she wrote about this song called Sparks Fly. She says, quote, Sparks Fly is about falling for someone who maybe you shouldn't fall for, but you can't stop yourself because there's such a connection, such a chemistry. And listen to the words of this song. I'll run my fingers through your hair and watch the lights go wild. Just keep on keeping your eyes on me. It's just wrong enough to make it feel right. And look what she teaches our teenage daughters. And lead me up the staircase. Won't you whisper soft and slow? I'm captivated by you, baby, like a fireworks show. You know, in a culture where the average lifespan of a marriage is less than eight years and where the number of divorces annually matches the number of new marriages, and where we live in a culture where the divorce rate among some Christian groups, in particular Southern Baptists, have actually been shown to be higher than the general culture around us, we begin to wonder if tunes like You've Lost That Love and Feeling have become, in some ways, a form of divorce anthem for our culture. That the way that we evaluate relationships is primarily based on the way I feel. Now, if you will, contrast this with a man you probably don't know, but uh, this was a a major figure in evangelical thinking over the last century, and his name is Vernon Grounds. I just got the last Christmas card that will be coming from his family this year. Vernon Grounds passed away this year in the fall, and his daughter wrote a Christmas letter that he used to send out. Now, Vernon Grounds was a professor at Denver Seminary where I went and got my master's degree and then he became the president of Denver Seminary. He had done a lot of writing in, in the field of Christian ethics. Every Christmas, he sent out 1,500 Christmas letters. Can you imagine that? All the addresses and stamps that that would take to do. He passed away this fall, so his daughter sent out the last one. And she shared a little bit in that letter about his home going. And on his deathbed, as he passed away, his wife of 71 years broke out spontaneously in song, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Imagine that, 71 years of a happy marriage. Somehow, I don't think they were relying on that love and feeling to make it 71 years. Or at 71 years of marriage, I don't know how many sparks actually fly. Uh, But if you've been anything like me, I've been married 20 years, and you'll know as soon as you get married that not all the sparks that fly are necessarily good ones. (laughs) How do you make it 71 years? Well, perhaps a clue might come from this gentleman. I don't know if many of you know who he is. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young theologian who died during World War II. He was imprisoned for his faith during Nazi Germany and the reign of Hitler. And uh, he was trying to, he stayed in Germany to try to, he actually came to the United States, went back, tried to help the church to survive through the Nazi regime. And uh, near the end of his prison stay, he was going to miss his sister's wedding. He actually died in the prison cell before he was released. But he wrote a sermon for his sister on her wedding day. And I want you to see an incredible line from this that maybe can help shape our thinking this morning. He said this, It's not your love which should sustain your marriage, but from now on, the marriage 
that should sustain your love. Think about how countercultural that is in light of all of the messages that we have bombarding us daily. What does it mean? You know, in a culture that places a primary, uh, well, maybe a premium on the pursuit of happiness, largely measured through the intensity and types of feelings we have, perhaps this kind of statement is almost incomprehensible for our culture. From now on, it's not your love that sustains your marriage. It's your marriage that sustains your love. Well, folks, over the next several weeks, we as the leadership of the church have uh, decided to spend January thinking about marriage and asking the Lord to strengthen our marriages and to do beautiful things through our church here. We're hoping that perhaps this would be a time in which you, if you come and you're in a good marriage, it will be a great marriage. If you're in a struggling marriage, this would be a time when you would receive some courage and instruction on how to, to walk forward in a great relationship. Perhaps if you're not married yet, this might be a time for us over the next month to capture these really shallow thoughts from songs like Sparks Fly or You've Lost That Loving Feeling, to capture those and replace them with the kind of biblical truth that comes from the Word of God. It's our hope that as we study the Scriptures, we'll find there the truths that make us stay with our marriages, fight for our marriages, work on our marriages, enjoy our marriages, and really minister through our marriages. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Larry will be back up in the pulpit and he'll be teaching on humility, like Christ's, within the marriage, forgiveness, faithfulness, and then even a, a section on purity and what it would be to be single and pursuing the Lord in preparation for marriages. Today, I have the privilege, as we kick off the series, to study this discussion from Ephesians chapter 5 when the Lord compares his relationship with his people to marriage. He does so in a way that he draws out what we understand to be a covenantal nature of the marriage relationship. And so we'll be working through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32. So if you'll open your Bibles and let's look at that passage together today, I'm going to pray for us as we uh, open the Word of God. So let's pray together, and then we'll look in the Scriptures. Father, it would be my great desire that I would be completely out of the way of what Your Word wants to teach us. So, Father, would You, through the Scriptures and how we walk through both Old and New Testament passages today, would this be something that's pleasing in Your sight, and would You use it amongst us, Your people, to make us more like You? So, Lord, may it be that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32. As always, uh, we put these on the text behind me on the screen, but it's far better if your nose is in your own Bible. So if you have your Bible, let's look at it from there. I'm reading from the New American Standard here today. Verse 28 through 32 reads this way. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as, and here's where I want you to tune in today, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Now, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and His church. 
All right, first thing I need to point out for you today as we talk about this, my topic today is a marriage like Christ. Let me just do a little disclaimer for you here. You might be familiar with this book and the movie that came out based on it, uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. If you saw the movie or read the book, there's something that, that I just need to say to you today. Dan Brown makes the claim within this book that uh, Jesus actually married Mary Magdalene and then tries to show clues through this book and pictures of the, the Lord's Supper by Da Vinci and things like that. Here's what I, all I need to say about this today. Uh, Dan Brown is a great storyteller. He's an absolutely horrible theologian and historian. That's really all we need to say. This, this is really on the level of the National Enquirer or a Harlequin romance novel. Um, and so you don't have to have any concerns that we're teaching that Jesus was actually married in any way like Dan Brown is. It's all kind of foolishness. He made a lot of money off a really bad uh, storyline, basically. Um, but for our sake, I just wanted to make that clear in light of the, the culture and what's happening. Now, in contrast to that, what's really beautiful is that all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus, or actually God, the the Trinity, makes a beautiful analogy between the marriage relationship and God's relationship with his people. There's a long and rich history all the way through the Old Testament and through the New Testament on that. So if you're looking at your text of Scripture, back in verses 28 and 29, this is what I want to highlight primarily from this passage this morning. Notice what's happening here. Paul's teaching the people in Ephesus about marriage. And so he says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as also Christ does the church. Now, if you have your Bible open, which I hope you do, look in Ephesians chapter 5. This whole really section of Scripture that we're, we're in is a larger section teaching on marriage begins roughly about verse 18 where you need the Holy Spirit's filling to actually have the kind of marriage that he's going to go on to explain. But in verses 22 through 33, that's where I want you to pay attention for a moment. If you will do a quick scan there, you'll see that in that 11 verses of Scripture, Paul says six different times that marriage is supposed to be compared to Christ's relationship with the church. Now, just based on on just fundamental Bible study skills, whenever you read a passage of Scripture, if something is repeated, you pay attention to it. Like in the song that we sang earlier today, the words, holy, 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 that's an indication that in that passage of Scripture, the Lord is wanting you to focus in and understand something about his own nature, his own character. Well, here in this passage of Scripture, the teaching, the primary teaching in the New Testament from the epistles on marriage what rises out of the text is that Paul repeatedly, and he even does it in the two, in two times in the four verses we're studying today, he compares marriage to Christ's relationship with the church. Now, this has a long history. Let me, let me give you an, a sense of how this was also in the Old Testament. It, Jeremiah chapter 3 would be a place you would look for this. Isaiah chapter 50 through 54. And the whole book of Hosea in the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Those would be just a smattering of places in which you see this marriage metaphor being used as God describes his relationship with the church. In Isaiah 54, 5, he says it this way, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, he is called the God of the earth. So we see this language used in the Old Testament, Paul's using it in Ephesians, and then you'll see even in the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelation, In verse 7 of chapter 19, 
This is how the future of those who are part of God's family, the body of Christ, this is how their relationship with God will be described in the future. Let us rejoice and be glad to give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb, that being Jesus, has come and his bride, that being the church, has made herself ready. So all throughout the Bible, we get this this really cool picture that God wants us to understand something very sweet, and that is our relationship as the church to God is compared like marriage relationship, like a husband who loves and pursues after a wife. It's how God loves and pursues his church. Now, one of the neat things about that then is that it should teach us that if we want to understand something about our own marriages, perhaps we can learn quite a lot by the way God loves his people. Now, through the Old Testament, God uses this language of covenant to describe his marriage relationship with his people. And this is real important. Let me highlight this uh, significant element of this. In our culture, we typically don't use the word covenant for a lot of things. We use the word contract. But there's actually a very large difference between those. And let me highlight that real briefly. A contractual relationship is one in which two people come together and they both agree upon some, something they're going to do. So let's take, for example, an auto mechanic. You have a car that's, I always have cars that break down, so I go to auto mechanics a lot. And so I go to Scott's garage, uh, or Doc's garage, Scott downtown, I'll take my car down to him, and we have a contract when I bring my car to him. Scott's going to repair my car, and I'm going to give him money. Now, in a contractual relationship, if he doesn't repair my car, I don't give him any money. If I don't give him any money, he's not going to repair my car. So, in other words, the relationship is based on a mutual agreement, We both have to fulfill our sides of it. Now, this is different than a covenant. In the Bible, when the Scriptures talk about the covenant and when we see that taking place there, the idea is that there's a promise that one person gives to the other, and the other one will oftentimes promise something in return. But here's the difference with a contract. The covenant says, even if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I'm going to keep mine. And the reason I'm going to do that is the covenant is based in the nature of who I am. I'm a promise keeper, and so therefore, if I've promised this, I'm going to keep the promise. That's significant. Now, notice how God describes this. This is a little bit more technical section of the sermon right here, so I'm going to walk you through, and I'm going to put up on the overhead slides to walk you through the Old Testament. I want you to see the covenantal language that God's used historically all the way through the Old Testament with his people. So take a look at a couple of these places You see in Noah, the first discussion of the covenant relationship God has with his people is in Genesis chapter 6, but it's more clear in Genesis chapter 9 as God develops this. So let me read this to you here. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth. And then God said to Noah and to his sons, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember, and notice the phrase, the everlasting covenant between God and all his living creatures of every kind on the earth. Okay, so God says, I'm going to make a promise, and I'm going to keep my promise. In, a little later in the book of Genesis, you see he makes a similar promise to Abraham and then also to Isaac, his son. And here's the way it says, you can see this in Genesis chapter 12. I'm actually taking this largely from Genesis chapter 17 and cherry-picking a few verses out of that whole chapter so you can see this in verses 3 through 7 of Genesis 17. Listen to how he says it. Abraham falls face down, and God says to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. 
You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. And I will, excuse me, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations from you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an, notice again, everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Abraham has a son and his name is Isaac. You see here in verse 19, it says, the Lord God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him. And again, note, as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Well, Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had lots of kids. They did this fruitful multiply thing pretty well. And so that group of people then become called the nation of Israel. And God has a covenant with the nation of Israel. And this is passed on largely through Moses. So when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments, that's yet another version of the covenant. Notice the language here. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, or excuse me, my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Covenantal relationship. God establishes it with Noah. We see it through Abraham. It's passed down to Isaac. And then the people of Israel through Jacob understand that God's in a covenantal, a promise relationship like a marriage that's dependent upon his own character. Well, you see the fruition of this in the Old Testament through what God promises to David. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Notice what he says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, a covenant is being formed here. We don't see the specific language of covenant in that particular scripture, but in Psalm 89, it's very specifically what's referred to as a covenantal relationship. And here's the way it says it there. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So, folks, what I want you to be picking up here from this brief walk through the Old Testament is that when God describes his relationship with his people as a marriage, he also understands that that marriage is a covenantal one. It's one in which the promises that he makes, he will keep regardless of the faithlessness of the people that he's married to. It's a beautiful promise from God. Now, when we get to the New Testament, you see the fulfillment of this covenant through the person of Christ. This passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 72 This is a passage that John the Baptist is born and his father Zechariah breaks forth in the prophecy. And listen to what he says. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And recognize the hearkening back to the covenant. And he said through his holy, or as he said through his holy prophets long ago, Uh, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who face us to show us mercy to our fathers and to remember, here's the word, his holy covenant 
the oath which he swore to Abraham. So in the birth of Christ, then, we see that God is fulfilling the covenant that he had with Abraham and with David, and Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus himself uses the language of covenant to describe his relationship with his church. And when, he, when he gives us the command for the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, he says this, Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many and for the forgiveness of sins. Finally, then, in understanding this language of covenant, in the book of Hebrews, the word reads this way, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. What do we want you to see here? Let me give you a summary statement of what I just walked you through so you get a sense of what we're after. Not only does God describe his relationship with his people as a marriage relationship, but that marriage is one that's covenantal in nature. And God promises to be faithful to his promise regardless of how the other person behaves. In this case, regardless of how faithless the Israelites were, God would keep his relationship. And here's one of our first application points that comes from this. I want you to see that the security of the people of Israel was not dependent upon their own behavior. The security of the people of Israel was dependent upon the character of their God who made a promise and will fulfill his promise. See, security in our relationship with God depends on his character and his goodness towards us. So what is this new covenant that we see is referred to here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Well, I want to suggest to you that it's, in many ways, the fulfillment of everything that God's been saying up to this point. And it comes down to the person of Christ in the babe that was born at Christmas. And what we just recently celebrated at Christmas is this understanding that Jesus is the person who establishes this new covenant. At Christmas time, we understand it's for unto us a child is born, a son has been given. And the Christmas season is the fulfillment. It's our celebration of the fulfillment of all that God has done in keeping his promise. But, you know, that's not the only thing about God's promise. We see, actually, on Good Friday, that it's when Jesus dies on the cross, that he becomes the one who pays the penalty for all of our sins. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners people who had gone astray from the covenant that God had established with us. Even while we had gone astray, God demonstrates his love by dying for us. And the great news is why always Christmas is connected with Easter. Is that not only did Jesus die and pay the penalty for our sins, but he rose again, not only to have new life himself, but to offer to all who had had faith in him new life to be a part of this everlasting covenant that he's established with his people. Romans 8 excuse me, chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, reads this way. This is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, or in other words, a proper relationship with God, and it's with the mouth he confesses, demonstrating his salvation, if you will. 
So if you go back to Ephesians 5.30, then what that's telling us is that this is how we become the body of Christ. This is how we become God's people, is by faith in Jesus Christ, we become partakers of this covenantal relationship in which God sees us as his bride. It's a beautiful picture that we have where we become the bride of Christ, members of his body. Now, what I want you to understand that the beautiful promises that come with this covenantal relationship of all of the beautiful promises that come with that eternal life and joy that's promised to us, abundant life, one of the most sweet ones and one that is so very important for how we understand our marriages is security. Let me show you three passages of Scripture to help you develop this. We sang about one in the very beginning of the service today. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Listen to what the Lord promises to those who are part of the covenant that he has, his marriage relationship with his people. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's good news. Look what he says. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, the promise to the believer is that if you've entered into this covenant with God, he looks at this like he's a jealous husband who pursues you and he holds you and he will never let you go. Nobody can snatch you out of the hand of God. And this is why when God enters into his marriage relationship, he says, never, ever will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Going back to Ephesians chapter 5. Our relationship in marriage, six times in 11 verses, Paul compares our relationship in marriage to Christ's relationship with the church. What that means for us, folks, is that marriage then is a portrait of God's love for his people. Christ's relationship with the church then becomes the blueprint for our marriage. And this is where we make the turn to making application points specifically to who we are as a people and how we live in our marriages to be reflective of something that's far more important than just our own personal relationships. I want you to get this. Look back in your text of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, and let's look at verses 30, 31, and 32 to kind of make, put some flesh on this. Because we are members of his body... Actually, let me put that on the screen for you. Okay. Verse 30... Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What's this mystery? What's the mystery that Paul wants us to understand about marriage here? Well, the mystery is this. From the very beginning, you see this passage in verse 31, this is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 2 when God instituted marriage in the first place. And what God wants us to understand is from the very beginning when marriages were created, they were always supposed to be a living picture of how God will love his church. 
that all marriages that would have gone on if sin had never entered the world, they would have always been a reminder to everybody who watched every one of those that this is a picture of how God loves his people. And that's what marriages were built for. This is a, mis- a mystery. It's a stunning idea that God would have, from the very beginning, made that as a portrait. But perhaps what's even more stunning is that even after the fall, after sin enters the world, after sinners start to marry each other, we see that that portrait is still supposed to be a picture of how Christ loves his church. Very specifically, what that means for us, my friends, is that when someone looks at the marriage of a Christian man and woman in particular, they should recognize a very clear portrait of how God loves his people. And it's at this point where I started to come under heavy conviction myself as I was preparing this message. And maybe some of you are beginning to sense the pretty stunning nature of what that means for us. You see, what the Scripture tells us is that whether or not you like it, whether or not it's comfortable... Our marriages tell the world something about God. That's simply the way he designed our relationships. Therefore, perhaps there are some things that are, we ought to be thinking that we should learn from the way God loves his church that should affect our marriages. One of the things that is so dominant throughout the scriptures is that God lavishes forgiveness on his people. It's the kind of God that he is. While we don't deserve a bit of it, God lavishes forgiveness A second thing that takes place as we see what God does is that there is a deep security that flows from the love of God. And he says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Not only is there a sense of security, but notice that from the Scriptures there's a deep and abiding commitment to perseverance that God says, never And you think of, if you read the Old Testament, you see all the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. The whole Old Testament is basically a story of God's goodness, people straying. God's goodness, people straying. And God keeps his promises. He perseveres in them. And this is why, my friends, when you get married, I would encourage you. I was one of those guys. When we got married, I was one of those guys. I was kind of a little bit of a hippie type. I looked a little different. My hair was long, and I never wore really clean clothes. I, I... my hair's shorter. I still don't wear clean clothes a lot. But um, my wife encouraged us when I got married. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and let's write our own vows. It's kind of cool to do, write our own vows. It's become really a, uh, something that happens all the time in our culture. But my wife encouraged me that we would stick with the traditional vows. And I'm really, really glad now that I've been teaching on marriage and family for a decade. I'm so glad that we stuck with our traditional vows because they say things like this. For better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, and then this intense line, until death do us part. That reminds me of something. It reminds me of never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that's why when we say our vows... Something significant is going on before a watching world. I'm saying something about God and how he loves his church. 
So, regardless of the state of your marriage, there's something simply that's true, and that truth is this, that you are currently, if you're married, you're picturing God's love for His people. The only question that remains then, is it a good picture or is it a bad picture? Is your marriage a heretical message about God's love for His church or is it a beautiful, tasteful one? that people would love to be a part of and see and understand. That's really important for us to get as a church. In a denomination where we have over 50% divorce rate, we need to be the ones that change that. This is our responsibility as a church to be a light to the world, for our marriages, for my marriage to be one. My marriage to my wife should be something that pictures something beautiful to the, to the world around us. So let me give you a few specific applications, and then I'm going to give you a few um, challenges here to finish our time together. First of all, when you think about your relationship with your spouse, that should teach something about how God loves His church. One of the things it should teach is that your marriage should be a concrete picture of the love of God. And that kind of love is one that's an other-focused love that doesn't quit. It doesn't forsake the other. I'm wondering, if you were to ask your spouse or your children, would they tell you that it's absolutely stunningly clear that you would never leave your spouse? Would they say that to you? Oh, yeah, that's totally clear, Mom, Dad, that's totally clear. This is the reason why, because our marriages are supposed to pick pick something about Christ's relationship with the church, let me give a piece of advice to any of you who are married and for any of you who may someday be married. Married, as soon as you are married, the word divorce should be erased from your vocabulary. If you joke about it, if you kind of threaten it, it means you don't understand something about what God is telling you about your marriage. Your marriage is supposed to be depicting something about how God loves His church, and therefore you should be being, building in security into your mar- building security into your marriage by the way that you discuss your marriage. Secondly, your marriage should be a concrete picture of grace and forgiveness. Obviously, folks, graciousness, in order to have a marriage that reflects God's love for His church, we need to be people who forgive and people who seek forgiveness radically. At my home, I have a... uh, You may not believe this, but I was a decent athlete as a kid... Uh, and I have trophies. My, in my home, I have some of the trophies I, I earned when I was a teenager, and I have the, they're stashed away in the attic. I was hoping someday my kids would care. They don't. Um, but, what, you know, what a trophy is, is a, a trophy is something that's supposed to be a symbol or a display of something else bigger that took place at some point in time. When Paul tells us that our marriages are like Christ's relationship with the church, your marriage is, in essence, supposed to be a trophy that's set up in a prominent place of display so that when people see that trophy, they'll understand grace and forgiveness. So let me ask you again. If people were to watch your marriage, if your children were to evaluate your conversations with each other, would they say, my parents are stunningly gracious. My parents forgive each other in a way that makes me want to know more about Jesus. 
Now, if you're sitting here right now, if you it's my own heart, that's why I want to say this, because I know it's probably going on with some of you. If you're sitting here right now and you're saying, boy, my spouse really needed to hear that, <laughs> that message was directly for you. <laughs> Folks, if your disposition in your marriage, let me say it differently, your disposition in your marriage should be that you are the biggest sinner in your marriage. If that is not your disposition in your marriage, then you're getting something wrong. And I would encourage you to spend a deep and long time of study in Matthew chapter 18, where we see an intensely beautiful portrait of what it means to understand forgiveness and how that relates to the gospel. But it's also a very tragic story about a man who doesn't understand what forgiveness is and his own sins. So if you're struggling with seeing yourself as the biggest sinner in your marriage, study Matthew chapter 18 at length. Really dwell there and ask the Lord to help you see. Folks, for your marriage to have the kind of lasting power that lasts 71 years, like Vernon Grounds did, perhaps the disposition is that daily you're stunned that your spouse would love you like she or he does. You, you should be stunned. That should be a, a sense that you're, you cultivate in your own marriage that, I, baby, I don't understand how you love me. I'm an idiot. If you think you're doing a favor by loving your spouse, get over yourself. And third, and finally, let me suggest to you that your marriage should be a concrete expression of the work of God on behalf of His kingdom. See, one of the things that we forget so oftentimes is that God actually brought us together so that we could be a picture of something bigger than ourselves. Marriage is not primarily for me. It's not to fill a loneliness gap in my soul. Marriage is something that's supposed to depict how God loves his church. And one of the ways God loves his church is that he does things through his church to reach his world. One of the great privileges of marriages is that because, by definition, it's an act of evangelism, when people see your marriage, they should want to know more about the Lord. So perhaps what that means is you start leading a small group so people can watch your marriage. How are you ministering and thinking through your marriage as a tool for ministry? My family and I had the privilege a couple of years back when our, friend, our children invited one of their friends over to the home. And as this young lady watched what happened in our home, she became interested in knowing about Jesus. Now, I don't know how that happens other than I have an incredible wife But somehow this young lady asked questions, and that was part of her journey to coming to faith in Christ. So perhaps our marriages can be something that's bigger than ourselves for the glory of God. Can you think about something more stunning than the idea that if you're well married, you can help reach the lost and equip them to join with you in the process of becoming a mature and ministering worshiper of God? That's incredible. So let me me conclude our time by... um, doing two things. Let me ask the worship team if you all folks will start coming forward. And as they do so, let me get you as a congregation to think through a few things together with me. I'm under the persuasion that some of you might now be under a little bit of conviction. I know I am. Every time I teach on this subject, I come under some form of conviction of places where I have failed. Some of you may be in a relationship that's really struggling right now. Some of you may have already been through a divorce relationship. 
some of you have come today maybe anticipating that, that your marriage that you're currently in is going to end. It's just a matter of time. Imagine there's still others that today maybe are coming under a kind of conviction that's saying, you know, perhaps this marriage isn't really about me, but I've certainly been focusing on myself a whole lot. So maybe you're not in danger of your marriage ending, but you're coming under conviction that perhaps you've been too self-centered and been thinking about how your spouse is failing you. And then maybe, maybe there's just a more daily kind of conviction that you're coming under that perhaps you've just not told your spouse thanks nearly often enough for being the kind of person that would hang around with someone like you. So I want to challenge you for four points of application as we close our surface. First of all, I want to ask that you would really think through places in your own marriage where you need to seek forgiveness from your spouse. And maybe in our church, as the band will begin to play in a few minutes, what we have typically used this time for at the end of our services is a response time where if you if so moved, feel free to come forward and just have a time before the Lord where you're confessing to Him, Lord, I, I need to change. Something needs to be different in my life. Perhaps that time you could even just simply lean over to your spouse and say, you know, I've not thanked you enough for being an incredible person. Thank you for loving me. So use this time as a time of reflection. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is, is come back for the next four services and hear a much better preacher teach on much more practical skills. Third thing I want to encourage you and challenge you to do is to be committed meaningfully to a small group at North Wake. Our small groups are really the backbone of our church, and if you are in a marriage that's struggling, you can find there friends who will love and honor you and rally around you and help protect and nurture your marriage relationship. If you're in a healthy relationship, you can have lots of joy with other good marriages as well as be someone that can pour into lives of people who are around you. And then finally, let me just make two things available to you. At the end of the service today, if you're interested, we have in the foyer on one of the tables, we have the Northwake mission statement, or excuse me, um, marriage and divorce discussion that the elders have put together. So if you want to see some teaching on that, as well as an article that I've written for a forthcoming book, and the title of that is Marriage and the Meaning of Our Marital Vows. And those are on a table out there if you would want to explore any of these things a little bit further. In the meantime, let me close our service by reminding us of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words. And that is this. He said, it's not your love which will sustain your marriage, but from now on, it's your marriage that should sustain your love. May it be that that's the legacy of North Wake marriages. Let me pray for us. Father, we have the stunning privilege of reflecting through our marriages something true about your relationship with the church. Father, make our marriages a beautiful portrait of that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.